Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to The Solo Collective. I'm your host, Rebecca Seal. Today, we're going to be talking about anxiety. And anxiety has been, let's say, a big part of my life since I was really quite small. And so it's quite a personal one for me to talk about all of this stuff. But also, when we started asking the Solo Collective community what topics you would like us to cover in this series, anxiety was something that came up again and again. So it's not just me as a solo worker who is struggling with this stuff. I chose to talk to Sheru Izadi because I really got a lot from her book, The Kindness Method. Um, She's actually a specialist in addiction and recovery and studied psychosocial science at university and then became this kind of leading behavioural change expert. But the kindness method uses the techniques that she has developed during her work with people with addiction issues to help people of all sorts who don't necessarily have addiction issues but who want to kind of make behavioural changes. And certainly when it comes to anxiety, I think anyone who has anxiety issues and the symptoms of anxiety will agree that making behavioural changes that alleviate those would be (laughs) just really lovely. So it's a great book. And anxiety is for sure such a pertinent topic at the moment as well, because there are so many things to be anxious about. And I certainly found that my own anxiety really hit a peak that I hadn't experienced for many years um, during 2020. And I'm sure that that's true for so, so many of us. And I think understanding it and being kind to ourselves and compassionate to ourselves is just so valuable at the moment. So thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me. My very good friend Jess said that I needed to read your book, The Kindness Method, like immediately and sent me a picture of the cover and was like, this is the book for you. (laughs) And so I actually haven't finished reading it because I'm sort of taking it I feel like it's one to take a bit slowly for for anyone who hasn't read it and probably everyone should. It's a toolkit really, isn't it? It's a kind of set of practices and methods that you can use to affect change in your life. I guess I wanted to start off by saying that anxiety is a very big part of my life or or certainly has been. I'm kind of hoping that I might be a, might be at a point where I'm beginning to move through it rather than have it be the thing which defines me. And I think that's not too different for you. Is that right? That anxiety has been a thing for you too? Absolutely. I think sort of like fear-based responses to stuff have, have always been my place that I've struggled with the most. And yeah, anxiety for sure has sort of been my go-to place for quite a long time in terms of things I look out for to help me with it or to help me sort of remember that things are going to be okay or to help me stay sort of grounded and mindful as opposed to ruminating over what's just happened or what might happen. I feel anxiety physically too a lot of the time. I have to say, much like yourself, I think I've 
just recently, maybe in the last couple of years or so, got to a point where I feel like even the physiological responses are becoming a lot more manageable mm. um, because of the tools that I'm that I've been using and the efforts that I've made. To be honest with you, that's my big thing too. I feel very similarly. So when I was a teenager, and actually quite a little kid, I remember doing this when I was ten or eleven. I started hyperventilating for the first time. I remember my dad had to collect me from school because I really thought something was profoundly wrong. And, you know, and he didn't know what was going on either. And we went to the doctor and they gave me the brown paper bag to breathe in, which is the classic (laughs) hyperventilation response. But it was a really long time, like years before I actually got any psychological help with the issue. And it's probably only in the last year or so that I've had the right psychological help because when the pandemic hit, my anxiety just went off the charts and the only way that I found I could cope with it was by running every single day I just realized that I couldn't live with this physical feeling of anxiety anymore like I had to do something really really profound about it because it was so uncomfortable particularly in that state of kind of super heightened anxiety um that I was like I can't I can't do this I was like can't pass this on to my kids like you know they were marinating in my fear um, you know, I could feel it coming off me in waves and it just felt really important to do, to do something kind of really serious. And I'm, I'm really glad to say that I found a really good therapist and I feel as though I am beginning to, to work through it. But I guess I'm telling all of this because I feel like it's really important that people are honest about it. And I think it's really important, especially that people who have a kind of outwardly successful appearance <laughs> talk about how profound the difficulties can be with something which is as sort of seemingly simple as anxiety and I and I think it's so widespread it's so common to have these experiences and to have it overtake you physically as well as mentally absolutely and I think there needs to be more honesty about it amongst people who are giving advice too because yeah. a lot of the time the reason that we've gone into self-help behavioral change wellness whatever it is my my job is apparently now the reason we've gone looking for these tools isn't well, in my case wasn't because I was really academic it was because I needed them and you know there will be people who read the kindness method who make changes in their lives and where they're starting from is so far ahead than me or indeed anywhere I'll ever be because I'm you know, I'm so anxious. I'm so predisposed towards anxiety. There are other things that I'm absolutely not, you know, and that's that's good. And that's for other people, you know, to have their stuff. But I think it's important because I have so many conversations with other people who've written self-help books and other people who work in behavioral change or talking therapies. And, you know, that's what we seem to share in common is that the reason that we found these tools is because we struggle with these things. And so yeah. that's why it seems so absurd when people expect those people to be I don't know, perfect or just be like <laughs> gliding through life and everything's water off duck's back. And it's like, no, actually, we believe in these tools because we we need them. Yeah, I so agree. So I think one of the things that's been really difficult, I mean, this was my experience, but it's a massively wide experience, is that the pandemic and the kind of interaction between the pandemic and work, particularly if you work by yourself, has been extremely challenging for a lot of people and kind of uh, overwhelming in terms of anxiety, what do you think? I mean, this is a massive question, but is there are there things that we can do to kind of reduce anxiety in moments of extreme tension like that? What what are your kind of what's in the toolkit for you? For me personally, it depends on how I'm feeling. If it feels like it's more in my head, and I need, to, I just feel overwhelmed, and I'm I'm scared of things that I can't control. I tend to write them down now, 
I started this practice a few years ago where I just decided I was going to write down how many things I was worried about, just so I had evidence of times when my worst fears hadn't transpired to be the case, and also evidence of the fact that I was worrying about the same thing over and over and over again. And over time, it helped me more to believe in my capacity to deal with difficulty as it came up, as opposed to constantly have to over plan and control things, because I just saw evidence over and over that I got through that, sometimes just by just saying I was going to do nothing. I think one thing that I've learned has helped me enormously, which never even occurred to me when I was younger, is that doing nothing is actually sometimes the best choice you can possibly make, not just in terms of you know, not causing any damage (laughs) that you have to later go and deal with, but more in terms of being able to believe in your capacity to sit through discomfort and believe in your body's capacity to self-regulate. I was really quick initially to try to fix or change how I felt in the pursuit of feeling better, but invariably it was always just to change how I felt because I didn't like what I was having to sit in. And then when I got into all the personal development and the self-help stuff, I started wanting to change how I felt as quickly as possible with journaling and with meditation or go outside and breathe or run or spin or whatever else. And that all works and that's all great. It's more the case that the most powerful thing for me has been to sit and breathe a lot of the time and be okay with doing nothing. Imagine getting to that point. (laughs) I'm like, I'm such a not, I'm so, I'm so not a nothing person. I'm a fixer. I'm a massive fixer. Like I want to fix problems for other people. I want to fix problems myself I want to fix myself um and doing nothing is yeah really challenging how do you how do you do that yeah I think one of the ways to get to that point is to just ease yourself into it so initially what I was doing was saying okay I'm just going to sit for five minutes or I'm just going to sit for 10 minutes and see what happens and try to identify where in my body the fear was because I think a lot of the time I was so disconnected from how I actually felt I was completely in in my head about stuff. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this person hates me? What if all my friends are in a meeting right now talking about what they hate most about me? What if I'm never going to, you know, get another job? What if I'm never going to write another book? Like, and all these like super zoomed out things and then super zoomed in things too. Like, and I haven't paid my bills and I haven't done it. And I was kind of running on empty a lot of the time. And so I have found that being able to sit in the discomfort has been helped enormously by seeing personal development and, you know, self-care or whatever as preemptive, as opposed to waiting to need it on the spot. Because when I need something on the spot and I feel like I'm being compulsive or impulsive about it, I find it really difficult to impose a space between wanting to do something and actually doing it. Like wanting to reach for a glass of wine or wanting to call someone and say something I'm going to regret later, or just wanting to change how I feel as quickly as possible. I've noticed that my capacity and my clients' capacities to impose that space, be it in terms of time or closing the laptop or whatever the equivalent is, becomes a lot easier when I have already been taking care of myself and assuming that there will be bouts of anxiety that I will want to deal with better down the line. Before, what I used to do is look for things that I could do when I felt anxious, which still helps, but I found that I have less need for them with such an urgency when I just make it my focus every day to do the sorts of things that I know contribute to me feeling calmer and more positive and more capable of putting things in their place when it comes to thoughts and jobs and fears and as opposed to it all becoming this like one big thing. I feel like that's a feature of a lot of the conversations that we have here actually is that it's it's sort of about building like scaffolding around yourself to allow you to function at the hardest moments as best you can which is a very 
different way of thinking about human behavioral responses, I guess, to the ones that we're kind of usually given. Because the majority of the stuff that we get given culturally is like, here's a tablet for that, you know, here's a here's a fix, here's a quick response. I feel as though we're less good at talking about the stuff we need to do to underpin everything else. We not, It's not really something we're taught in school and it's not a kind of feature of general conversation, is it? Or parenting, it's not really how we're taught to parent or how we're parented. No, and I think it's quite... It doesn't seem like a very smart choice in a very basic sense because, for example, when it comes to habit change, the way I see it is every time you want to change a habit in your life, you could go find a new guru who specializes in that one habit you want to change, or you could build the foundations of understanding impulse control, understanding yourself better, knowing how to speak to yourself differently. Uh, You know, these much more transferable foundations that you can build on a day-to-day basis, knowing yourself better, backing yourself more. I mean, these are things that can apply in every life stage. So it's just more efficient. It's more cost-effective in every way. And it means that the focus is a lot more on your overall quality of life and your well-being on a day-to-day basis, as opposed to pinpointing and isolating this one thing that you've decided that you need to be really remedial about and that needs fixing at any given time. It also means that you feel poised to make decisions on the spot that you didn't plan for. And I know as a person, again, who's, you know, has struggled with anxiety in, in the past, one of the thi- a lot more in the past, one of the things that I found was difficult was knowing that I could trust myself to respond on the spot in a way that I wouldn't later regret. Like I, was, I was always the person who a few days later was like, whoa, goodness me. I had a lot of conversations that I wouldn't have chosen to have and I sent a lot of emails I wouldn't have chosen to send and and all of those things. Whereas now that I make it a day-to-day commitment to just kind of be a little bit more mindful, be a little bit more curious and compassionate with myself, when it comes to having to rely on myself to deal with something unforeseen that is, that is difficult, I just have a lot more faith in that I can make a decision that has my long-term interests at heart as opposed to that more... In my, set, in my case, with the work I've done, that more sort of childish part of me that just wants to change how they feel right now. So I think it's about, you're right, we need to take far less reactive approach and just assume that we will be challenged in certain ways and that building those foundations initially and daily. Do you think there are any factors in life that will sort of determine how well we deal with anxiety and, and, and why, why is there a sort of cycle of guilt with anxiety? Because I definitely feel that. My knowledge of anxiety comes almost entirely from my personal experience and talking to other experts about it um, who are experts in anxiety, like Chloe Brotheridge, for example, who's my kind of go-to. But in terms of the factors that determine how well people deal with it, I think acceptance of it, compassionate, gentle acceptance, and to some extent a surrender actually it seems scary, but for me has ended up meaning that it's it's going away <laughs> little by little by actually accepting, look, this is a part of me. This is something that I need to nurture and understand and care for. And the more I push it away, the more it seems to bother me and come back with a vengeance, like, you know, like holding a ball underwater until your arms get tired. For me, and th- what I've observed around me is that people who protect and place importance on their coping strategies, those preemptive ones, the self-care rituals, whatever else. And regardless of what anyone else says, see the importance of keeping those intact seem to be the people who I think handle anxiety better. 
So for example, I might say to you, look, I need to be alone for 10 minutes every day. I just, I just have to, I'm afraid. That might seem really silly. It might seem outwardly like there's a meeting I should do and that's, and that's more important. But I can cut to the end and think if I keep neglecting these things that I think are important, it's going to end up making me, you know, a far less, less present professional, a far less reliable friend and all of these things. I think that thing about compassion as well as and forgiveness is really critical. One of the things that I have experienced in the last year and a bit of therapy is kind of, well, one of the light bulb moments was when, um, when I was discussing some stuff which happened to people around me as a teenager. It was really shocking and unexpected. And when I sat down with my therapist and kind of listed this set of things which had happened over a kind of six year period, I was able to say, like, there's no, it's no wonder that I'm anxious when I've experienced this kind of six year long blast of loss. But at the time, I appeared to be fine. I mean, I was still having these anxiety issues, but I didn't associate them with what was going on around me. I just thought it was me. It was like a flaw in me. Um, and so I just carried on. I don't recall. I mean, I've talked about this with my parents recently and, you know, I don't think any of us really twigged what an impact it was having or was going to have. Um, and it was, it was only when I sat down with, with my therapist and listed it all that I, that I thought, yeah, actually that was huge and justifiably huge. And, of course, that stuff would sit with you for a long time and have a massive impact on how your brain works and would teach you all sorts of lessons about the safety of the world and who you could depend on and what you could depend on and what you needed to worry about. I think that's going to help an enormous number of people, if, if I may say. And I think also that it's, it's also that compassion. You know, so often people say to me, if I'm kind to myself, I'm not going to get anything done. And I'm mm. like, it's the, yes. quite the contrary. I cannot stress to you enough that when you stop feeling like everything's a sort of white knuckling thing, actually you open yourself up to all these new capacities. Like the way that, that you've just des- described that there, of that, that shift from why am I this way to of course I'm this way. <laughs> like how else did I think I was going to end up? Like yeah. where else did I think I was going to get my versions of reality you know, if it if it wasn't going to be my experiences of the world and, of course, what I'm predisposed to. And, you know, that sort of talking to yourself with compassion does actually, I think, goes hand in hand with strength when it comes to action. Saying, like, for example, when I talk to people about impulse control and they're like, well, if I'm kind to myself, I just let myself do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. And I always say when you're trying to build a new behavior, for example, you can simultaneously understand why you're finding it difficult and almost not let yourself do the thing you want to do with compassion. Much much like if you were training a child to do something and disrupting the status quo in terms of their everyday routine. Let's say they're used to getting a treat at like 11 a.m. every day and then you read an article, find out that this treat is really dangerous and you know as of tomorrow you're not giving this treat to this kid even though they're used to it. You're going to expect them to put up a fight and you're going to have sympathy for them. You're going to be like, I know, this has really disrupted that thing you like and it's going to take a while and I expect you to, you know, make give me a hard time but that doesn't mean I'm going to listen to you. So you can simultaneously have compassion and understanding for yourself and why you got to the place you're you're at. And I think that actually makes you feel more capable of taking actions that move you away from that. 
Whereas I think people get that wrong and I got that wrong for many, many, many years. And also I think there's there's a sort of mourning or a sadness that comes with acknowledging how long you've been being led by those core beliefs too. And then that's another opportunity to beat yourself up, you know? And then you think, and then you learn all this self-help stuff and you think, oh, brilliant. Then you beat yourself up about how much you've been beating yourself up. I think the compassion bit is really important. I think speaking to yourself kindly. And a lot of the time, you know, that thing that comes up in addiction a lot around accountability because so many people have suffered terrible trauma is saying, it's not my fault, but I've decided it's my responsibility to do something about it. But by no means am I going to go down this road of it's my fault. And I think that's, that's a really important distinction. Yeah, that is really important. That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that, but that's a really useful way of thinking about it. Someone who I work with at the Amy Winehouse Foundation, one of the amazing key workers there, we were, we were doing a clinical supervision and she was saying how she uses this analogy. You imagine that your car is parked on the street and that someone has gone past and smashed your taillight. That's not your fault. No one would ever say that that is your fault. If you want to get the car going again on the road, you'd probably want to fix it for others and for yourself, for the sake of your own safety, you know, but at no point in that process would anyone not appreciate the fact that that was totally not your fault and you totally didn't deserve it. Yeah, that's really, that's really important, isn't it? It's really profound. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And I think also to go back to what you were saying, it reminded me of something that I still struggle with, which is that I worried that if I gave up anxiety, like it was give upable in the first place, haha. Um, but like if I gave it up, would it stop me achieving anything? Like, did I need it? Was it the thing that drove me onwards? And I think particularly when you're a solo worker and you're outside of a kind of formal structure, even though you're driven to a certain extent by necessity and that you've just got to earn some money, I worried that giving up my worry would mean that I would just fail to do anything at all. And if I wasn't a kind of worried perfectionist, would what I produced just be mediocre? I'm beginning to get to grips with that. I can't pretend that I'm completely okay with it. But but that compassion thing, I do think I'm beginning to understand better that that I can treat myself with compassion Like if I was an employer, I wouldn't prod my employees endlessly and tell them that they had to do more and had to work harder and that they were a bit shit. And, you know, I wouldn't do that and expect them to produce their best work. No. And yet 
that's what I'm sort of doing to myself. I'm saying, come on, no, 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 you've got to push harder. You've got to push harder. Like getting trapped in those spirals of thought is so counterproductive, but we believe that it's the one thing that gets us going. It's it's extraordinary how we decide that we're the exception, that like self-care helps everyone else. But in my case, I need to be scared and cold <laughs> and tired and desperate and overworked. and overworked. And those things will make me more effective. And you know what? When I first started promoting the kindness method, I always used to say in like workshops and stuff, if you want to know the sort of script that would be helpful internally or the way that you would speak to yourself when you're challenged, then think about how you would speak to a loved one. Because invariably, when we when we speak to loved ones who are trying to do something difficult or trying to, to achieve a long-term goal and they've sort of like fallen off track and they're beating themselves up a bit and they've lost motivation. One, we don't say, oh, just give up. There isn't any point. You just start on Monday. And we don't try to minimize or normalize or invalidate how difficult the task is. We focus on how capable they are. You can do it. It was just a blip. Get back on track. It's okay. Take care of yourself. Go for a walk. All the common sense stuff. And it's interesting how quick we are to kind of go straight to the gurus and the complexities before we've even like had a glass of water and things like that. But I think the other thing is over time, I actually don't have to say, speak to yourself like someone you love. I can say, speak to yourself like someone you're getting paid to motivate. Say you hate them. You'd still be good to them. You would still say the things that make them feel calm and positive and resilient and capable and worthy, right? And that would be your best bet at giving them the tools that would keep them sustaining motivation long-term without your assistance. What do you think about solitary work and anxiety? Because the reason I wanted to talk about this topic wasn't just because I'm an anxious person, but because... We asked people on Instagram and Twitter and to let us know what stuff they struggled with, particularly as solo workers, and anxiety was a topic that came up again and again. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about what working alone does in terms of vulnerability to anxiety, perhaps, and you know, and whether you've got any tips or tricks to help people who are on their own a lot of the time with, I don't know, self-doubt, negative self-talk. <laughs> one of those things yeah absolutely I think again um I can draw from my own experience and that of my clients and readers really and one of the things that I find personally very difficult with the solo working thing is that if I get a good or bad piece of news through an email it just feels like everything's very silent there's nowhere to put it there's no one to say that's okay it's okay another thing will come or wow, brilliant, let's celebrate. Or there's just just complete silence. And so sometimes I feel like I'm not really internalizing or processing what's kind of happened. And you keep waiting to feel good or bad, but you just have to get on with your work. And so I found that punctuating events in my day has helped enormously. So I just keep like a notebook near me and I write headlines in it. Like 11 o'clock, got this email, really annoyed that this isn't working out. It's going to lose me up, load of money. That's got me worrying about my mortgage, which has got me worrying about whether I'm a grown-up human being at all. And then just seeing it written down, watching the journey of catastrophizing from from one email can help enormously. Because I think it kind of gets it out and makes it look like someone else has come to, come to you with a problem. And immediately it becomes quite clear what the common sense advice would be, which is usually, remember everything you've managed to do. This isn't the only thing. Here are the benefits of being self-employed. Don't forget this. And so now I have a collection of those things, like almost what I wish my business partner, the perfect business partner was there to tell me at those times. 
and again, it's extraordinary. My my mind just doesn't want to be able to do that on its own. <laughs> so writing it down really, really helps. What do you think the kind of blurring of the home life, work life boundary thing has done to anxiety in the last year? I don't feel like it's made it better for a lot of people. No. Kind of lack of boundaries. No, I don't know the science behind it, but I certainly think that it hasn't helped me to feel like I'm walking from one room into another. I live alone as well. So that hasn't helped in terms of feeling kind of claustrophobic. And But I think also I see a direct relationship between how much time I'm spending on screen and how anxious I feel when I get into bed and how, my, how much my head is whirring, whether that's because of all the Zoom calls or whatever else. It feels like that bit of connection that you might have got otherwise that kind of relieves you isn't there. I used to do a lot of meetings out and about. I used to make a concerted effort to go out and make that part of my routine and speak to other people and have almost conversations that didn't have to be had. They were the ones that reminded me that I was doing well a lot of the time because they were interesting and they were keeping me excited and calm in a way and kind of remembering that I was ironically plugged in to what was kind of going on. And I feel like the anxiety for me that's come from working from home and the lack of boundaries is that I feel like I'm on my own a lot more in that sense, work-wise. Unplanned, unfocused conversations weren't happening, boundaries-wise. Over the last year, I can't help but notice that work people are in your WhatsApps. You know, everyone's just doesn't care. Yeah, Everyone's messaging yeah, at all sorts so of different true. times. Although I have seen actually a few really cool like email footers from people I don't know if you've also seen them where they say like look I don't expect you to work the hours that I work I don't expect a response at this time that I've sent you an email I've seen that spring up in the last year or so I think um I think that kind of mindful I I'm working these hours you don't have to kind of thing is quite important but I think it's pretty rare like my experience is that people have just let their working hours kind of blur massively and I really think it's something we need to fight against, not just because of what it does in terms of anxiety, but also just in terms of how it lets work become this horrifyingly overpresent thing in our in our lives. Do you think there is a relationship between anxiety and the risk of burnout? I think a lot of the time, coming back to what you were saying earlier about thinking that the anxiety and the stress is actually fueling us to be more productive and that being a sort of false economy long term is really prevalent in, in a lot of the people that I see who eventually do burn out or not even get to that point, but feel like apathetic about their work and, and start making little mistakes every day and kind of noticing that themselves become more and more exhausted. A lot of those people are people who I've, I've learned feel that that stress and the worry and the anxiety and that hitting it hard actually helps them to be more productive and have started to kind of believe that. So I think in that sense, yeah, absolutely. Cherie, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I've learned a huge amount and I definitely feel like there's a few light bulb moments in the conversation as well. So hopefully that's felt that way for other people listening too. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and for sharing so openly too, because it really made it set the scene for me to do the same. So thanks a lot. I love that conversation so much. And oh, there's so much to take from it. But one of the things that I think is really important that we all remember is the taillight analogy. The fact that if somebody breaks your taillight when your car is parked and it wasn't your fault, you would never consider it to be your fault, but you would get it fixed. And I think there are probably a million different ways in which we can apply that narrative to our own lives. But specifically with anxiety, Let's remember, those of us who are anxious people, let's remember that this is not our fault and that we can do something about it.
Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Solo Collective. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have anything you would like covered, let us know by leaving us a review or you can message us at The Solo Collective on Instagram. You have been listening to The Solo Collective with me, Rebecca Seal, a Chalk and Blade original produced by Laura Hyde with support from Fatuma Kera, original music by Dee Plume and engineering by Matt Nielsen. Chalk and Blade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.